across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. The Big Chief with a badge, a cattle prod and a head on a stick. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It's the morning after the night before and the verdict is in. UKIP is officially dead and buried as a political force. The Brexit party was wiped out yesterday at the polls, losing 92 seats out of 94. The news wasn't much better for Labour, who despite Windrush, Grenfell and the Tory chaos over Europe, didn't manage to make any substantial gains over the Conservative Party, particularly in London, which they were meant to win all hands down. The real winners were the Lib Dems, who appears to have risen from the dead in a protest vote by Remainers up and down the country. We'll be telling you what it all means, but we want to hear from you as well. 0344 499 1000. Today I'm joined by celebrity lawyer Vanessa Lloyd-Platt, who doesn't just deal with celebrities, but is one herself. A very good morning to you, Vanessa. Flattery will get you everywhere. I will, it will indeed. And we're kicking off with an argument over free speech. I'm for it, she's against it. It's that simple. Universities are to be told to stop no-platforming speakers, and it can only be a good thing as far as I'm concerned. Vanessa has one or two reservations about it, though. 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on, as an homage to Katy Perrier, we will also have the Perrier Awards as well. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, and Vanessa Lloyd-Platt on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Vanessa Lloyd-Platt joins me. I haven't seen you for a little while, Vanessa, but it's yeah. delightful to see you on such a beautiful day, the start of a bank holiday weekend. Oh, it's going to be wonderful. It's going to be a right old scorcher, apparently. Yeah, scorcher. A scorcher, yeah, as we used to say. Hotter than, uh, the papers will be full of headlines, hotter than Seville and hotter than Cuba. Yeah, well, they've started saying in the news reports that actually people are going to have miserable bank holidays abroad. Oh, I think really? that's mean. I think they'll have a lovely time. <laughs> it is apparently today is the day that loads of people are going to be travelling, though, because I noticed this morning the tubes were quite quiet. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people have obviously taken this Friday off to Absolutely. disappear off uh, to some foreign climb. You'd better off staying here. Yeah, absolutely. Lots of people throwing unnecessary sickies. Yes, absolutely right. Now, talking of throwing unnecessary sickies, our producer, Con, is off to Rochdale this weekend, right, in a rather bizarre twist. Uh, So what we're going to be doing is asking you for advice on what to do in Rochdale on a rainy day. It's always bound to be raining when he's there, right? Well, book a return journey, I would say. Book a return journey, very good. That's where to start. But we want you to tweet us at Talk Radio or text us for 87222. And that'll cost you 25p plus uh, your standard network rate. Because I've never been to Rochdale. I don't know whether you have. No. I've got no plans to go. Uh, Nothing against the people of Rochdale. But, you know, I don't know what you do in Rochdale. So if you've got any ideas for Con, then please do uh, let us know. And uh, (laughs) we'll pass them on to Con before he makes the big, long journey up there. Uh, Now, let's kick off, though, with this free speech story, because basically what we need to know uh, is why, in the first place, some of these universities were actually no-platforming people, um, because they've now been told, or are going to be told by the university university's uh, minister, to basically stop no-platforming people. Now, you think that there are some circumstances where some people should not be allowed to to, to spout their hatred, right? I do. I mean, the whole idea behind this uh, new provisions is that there's been institutional hostility to certain unfashionable and perfectly lawful views. Yes. And zealots are stopping people having any views at all. Mm. But, however, there is one area that I'm very concerned about, and that is aiding and abetting terrorism. So if people are coming on those platforms and spouting stuff that is really unlawful, they should not be allowed on those platforms. Mm. So extremists that uh, are encouraged 
encouraging people to go out to countries and fight against uh, what we believe in, I really, really think should be stopped. Okay, but if there's a law, but I mean, you're a lawyer. If there's a law against something, then surely there's already then a mechanism to stop them from making those speeches. Well, there should be, but they have been. What's been happening is that students have been fashionably allowing those kind of people to speak, and uh, and fashionably not allowing people with sensible views. There's been a lot of hostility towards Israeli speakers. They haven't been allowed to speak. They haven't been allowed to be invited. Mm-hmm. Um, and even some on the Palestinian issue haven't been allowed to even speak. So it's wrong that they are silencing free speech. But at the same time, I think there has to be some more sensible guidelines about allowing people with extremist views that are going to incite hatred. OK, well, let's get an, an idea of how this is all going to work with Sean Griffiths, who's education editor at the Sunday Times. Sean, a very good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks very much for joining us. Vanessa does have a point. I mean, I would be tending to disagree with her on the basis that surely if you allow free speech, you have to allow all free speech, not just yeah. the, uh, the free speech that, that you want to allow. Do you know what I mean? However... I think that's absolutely right. I yeah. mean, you're, you're so right on that. I think free speech is free speech. I mean, you can't pick and choose, you know, you know and say... This, this is okay free speech and this isn't okay free speech. And to a certain extent, what's going on on campus, I think, is a bit of a culture war. You know, it's, it is a bit of a battle between right and left and between different groups. Um, and I kind of take the view that, you know, when you're a student, you know, you should be able to hear all points of view. Yeah. You should be able to debate it out and come to your own opinion. It's like these young people, they're going to have to make up their own minds. And I think... You know, I mean, I don't agree with no platforming, absolutely not. And I don't agree with safe spaces. But I also don't agree with Vanessa's idea that, you know, then, you know, somebody should say these people are OK and these people are not OK. Well, that's where it gets tricky, the law, isn't it? They should be prosecuted, absolutely. Yeah. Um, if they're inciting hatred or uh, inciting extremism or terrorism. But, you know, until they do that, I think we, we're a democratic society and people have a right to speak. But would that then lead to situations where, for example, um, people who might be, say, suspected of, of hate speech, which would be against the law. Would you have people maybe in the audience, police officers perhaps, waiting to arrest them? Yeah, it's not going to happen, is it? I mean, in, in all reality, the police haven't got enough time to do most things, and they're certainly not going to go around arresting people for their views in this, this scenario. What I'm saying is, and I do believe in free speech, but I do believe that where you're inciting hatred, there is crossing of the line. And I do think there's got to be somebody that can make a decision of who those people should be that have to be stopped before it's out. I mean, the people. I mean, the people who've really, uh, you know, been no platforms in, in in recent years or in in recent months, really, are are people like Jermaine Greer, um, the feminist, because of her uh, views or comments about transgender people. Peter Tatchell, who the gay rights campaigner, he's also been a victim of no platforming. Um, Jacob Rees-Mogg um, faced protests when he tried to speak. Yeah. Um, and these are really the student unions um, often organising these events where people turn up and then students protest um, or try to stop them speaking. Um, I mean, I don't know. I just think student protests have always gone on, you know, always, always. Um, I think it would be sad if all that protest and dissent and discussion was closed down. And, of course, I don't think students should be doing anything illegal. They shouldn't be, you know, um, intimidating people um, and they should be allowing them to speak. But I think that goes right across the board. And, you know, today people might want to 
no platform Jermaine Greer. Tomorrow it will be somebody else. It is really important that that right to free speech is protected for everybody. And I look forward to seeing this new guidance because I think it's such a complicated area. Uh-huh. I can't imagine how it's going to work. Well, it's going to be difficult, isn't it? I mean, how does it work at the moment, Sean? I mean, in what sense does the university involved or the individual sort of student union involved make the decision? Do they do, they do a poll? Do they do they sort of make unilateral choices? How does it go? Well, I think I think there's a, every university has its own kind of rules. Um, but most universities now have kind of got on top of this and they do require the student union to let them know who's speaking, to let them know do they think it's going to be controversial. I think if, the, if it is going to be controversial, they quite often will have marshals there, um, you know, uh, the in, internal security. Um, but we're still seeing, we are still seeing, even recently, we are seeing protests that, you know, tipped over, I think, uh, in some cases into it, probably intimidation. I agree, I agree. And, but um, will it apply? Will it apply to the Labour Party and social media? Oh, I think we're. <laughs> I think we're going beyond my brief here now. <laughs> well, I mean, the university's <laughs> minister. Are you t- are you talking about you know, Labour yeah. Party yeah. involvement in universities? Yeah, and and the fact that, that that the Labour Party members seem to be silencing people that are trying to speak out on anything. And so, I think if we're going to deal with it, cracking down on university students, perhaps we could try it on the politicians too. Sure. Oh, a pass on that one. I, I have no <laughs> idea. But that kind of that kind of does bear out my point that what is going on to a certain extent in campus is a war between left and right. Um, uh, you know, they, they, these are political battles that being uh, that are being fought. With the right wing want their speakers to be heard, and the left wing want their speakers to be heard. Um, so there is, it, you know university campuses at the moment, and I feel sorry, a bit sorry for vice-chancellors, are, you know, this battleground mm. for actually what is quite a political debate. Yeah. And what is it about the way that the political landscape now kind of emerges as a as a, as a, bat- a real battleground? I mean, I was at university many years ago, Sean. We used to kind of do things like occupy the vice-chancellor's office and, and go we on marches and, and <laughs> you know, had quite a bit yeah. of fun doing it. But there was never, I don't remember there ever being such a vitriolic atmosphere between people who wanted to hear one thing and other people who wanted to hear something else. I mean, it's really become very poor poisonous, isn't it? It has become very poisonous, and I think that's partly because the big political parties are weighing in on, on in the debate. You yeah. know, um, you know, they're that's really making point. it. That's my point. That's your point. Yeah. That's my point. Yeah. There's a lack of respect everywhere, and it should start from the top down. So I think it's all very well saying about the university students, which I think is a good idea to allow a certain amount of free speech with the riders, I've said. But I also think that the political parties now have to show a bit more respect to each other. Mm, well, um, respect is a very, very good thing. I, I mean, actually, Mike, your point about protests and occupations, yeah. the students have been doing a bit of that themselves. It's, it's all got quite exciting in the last 12 months. Oh, right. so, yeah, I mean, they've had these... Um, I mean, not, not about free speech issues, actually, but because of the strikes, the lecturer strikes. I mean, a lot of students um, have been occupying buildings mm. in support of the lecturers, and now they are busy demanding compensation because of all the lost teaching time. <laughs> oh, that's um, well, that's the millennials for you, isn't it? You've got to get compensated for something that you've done yourself. But aren't the millennials so different from the students of our days? We, we did have sit-ins and we did protest, but we didn't have flat-screen televisions and a water coolers and all the other... And 100-pound trainers. And 100-pound trainers. We, just, we were poverty-stricken, yeah. but the students today are just not... Uh, I don't know. I feel I, I don't know. I, I I don't. This generation snowflake stuff. I I'd speak up for the millennials. I think they'll turn out to be okay in the end. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure they will. I just I just wish they'd stop taking themselves quite so seriously, Sean. Yeah. But there we are. Listen. Thank you very much indeed, Sean Griffiths, education editor of the Sunday Times. There.
1000 is the number to call. This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham, Vanessa Lloyd Platt here, of course, as well. Uh, she's a lawyer. Uh, do you spend a lot of time in the court? You probably don't. Most of your work's kind of office-driven, well, is it? I used to do a lot of advocacy at the yeah. beginning of my career, but mm. now I get other people to do it. Yes. Is it not something... Is it something... Because some lawyers are very, very good at it and are less good at perhaps other things, right? So yes. you choose litigators and, 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 and sort of performers, Absolutely. I suppose. Well, we have a divided profession in England between yeah. solicitors and barristers. Right. And whilst solicitors have got rights of audience in some uh, levels of court, um, some of them, and a lot of them actually, prefer to have barristers doing the actual advocacy. Right. It's a time thing. Mm. I don't, don't have time to do all the work if I do all the advocacy. No, indeed. And do the advocates then expect you to do all the sort of donkey work and provide them with the oh, arguments yeah. to make? And then they just make them. Yes. Right. But there are some fabulous barristers out there that create as well as take instructions. Right. Well, we're going to talk to a fabulous barrister now. Bobby Friedman uh, is with us because there's a story going around that they're going to think about closing down some court buildings and actually using kind of the idea of a pop-up court. And it could be in a pub, it could be in a library, uh, it could be in any sort of other civic building, perhaps. Bobby, a very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. Well, thank you for that introduction. Not at all. Uh, Not at all. My pleasure. Now, um, I, I've, I've somewhere in the back of my mind got got a, a sort of memory of, of of judges that used to travel around the country and do kind of you know little sessions here and there. Is that still something that goes on? It is something that goes on. The Supreme Court was sitting earlier this week in Northern Ireland. In fact, right. judges do do go around the country, and there's been a bit of a, a, a shift in. In, in the culture as well, that it, you, you now have a lot more hearings outside of London. So in places like uh, Leeds or Manchester, it's pretty common uh, for, for even quite big cases to, to be heard there. Mm. So justice isn't just in, in London anymore, though obviously uh, most of the really big cases do end up staying in London. Sure. Now, what do you think of this idea of sort of pop-up courts? We've got pop-up restaurants now. You have pop-up stores. I was in a pop-up um, a shop in, in New York, which was like the Google store. Um, I mean, well, this is quite a good idea, isn't it? Well, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I mean, it's, uh, the, the, court, the court service is under huge pressure in terms of resources. And I think if there's a, a more efficient way of doing it and you can do it more cheaply and bring it closer to people so it's, it's more convenient to people, then, then that can only be a good thing. And look, courts are not really that kind of rump hole of the Bailey type, uh, <laughs> type of court that you imagine. There They're are not. Some. <laughs> How disappointing. <laughs> no, it is disappointing. I, you know, sometimes you do get to go in the old the old courts in the in the royal courts of justice uh, on the Strand, and they have the beautiful high ceilings, and it feels like you're in a proper court. But most of the time, you go into a room which is like a dull civic office, which you imagine is leaking, yeah. and there's a couple of boring tables in there, and and it's pretty depressing, frankly. And so, I don't think you know perhaps we could do with a drink rather than uh, <laughs> have to be in some of the. Well, I mean, I was saying, well, just be, I was saying just before the show. I mean, there are certain pubs, and I'm not going to name them for fear of litigation myself but you could if you if you have opened up a sort of a legal arm of the pub uh, you could probably just uh, do the, all the cases with all the people that were coming in there at the same time and cut out the middleman <laughs> yeah there probably is uh, most of the cases discussed actually are all discussed along uh, fleet street uh, indeed absolutely right well, but is, I, I, i'm very unhappy bobby are you not a little bit sceptical about them being held in pubs because I you know I had a, a situation a while ago where one of my clients was perfectly sober before lunch <laughs> and went into the pub just before he was going to give evidence and then was completely incoherent after the break so I think it is a little dangerous to have it in the pub itself I mean I don't know what your views are Bobby 
Well, I think that probably is a bad idea. You know, we also don't want to put temptation in the way of judges as well, because they they do sometimes get a little little bit bored. So I don't don't want them to have a drink to to help things along. I mean, this, <laughs> I mean, a, a pub is maybe uh, you know a little bit silly, but in terms in terms of using empty spaces, I think that's the that's the point. And it's got to be creative. There's a a book which I'm sure most people have heard about, but written by by someone called the the Secret Barrister. Um, I don't know whether it's a he or a she, but the Secret Barrister has written a book saying about how they're all sorts of problems with the court system at the moment and it is true that financially uh, things are, are not going that well for the court system the a lot of the processes don't work that well and so i do think that we have to be creative because as long as you have what we do have that's, that's fantastic in this country is we have uh, judges who genuinely want to do the best who are generally very sensible very kind sensitive people who who i think you know, by and large come up with the right the right decision yeah. and so it's about finding ways to save money so that but ultimately people can get in front of those judges and actually get their decisions done in the right way well, that's right and i agree with that bobby but what concerns me is when they sack a whole load of judges um that were in the family courts thinking that they would sort of streamline everything and then they have to use deputies who they're paying even more than they paid the judges in the first place so they there's sort of stupid savings that aren't really savings. Why are they closing down so many courts, do you think, at a time when there's a shortage of courts? I mean, it's all about money, isn't it? I mean, I I think that... There is a there's a kind of fetishization of the court building, and I don't think, for me at least, I don't think that a building has to be a court for you to for you to get justice. And the, and these days, a lot of the really big cases and a lot of the stuff that that I do is is done by way of arbitration. Uh, yeah. Which is not a court process, and you just do, you do just go to a building where you've hired a room, yeah. and it, it feels like a court, it looks yeah. like a court, but it's not a court, and and so that's why I think what they're talking about. Obviously, pubs are the most headline-grabbing one, but they're talking yeah. about hotels, town halls, universities. These are all places that have loads of rooms that aren't being used. That that it's pretty cheap. You just you just need a room where people can sit there, and if it means that the court services aren't paying huge amounts of money trying to ke- to keep up these buildings, which which are large in terrible condition, all sorts of things are going wrong all the time. They're cold, they're smelly. You know, it's actually better for everyone. <laughs> the judges. Go quite nice. Yeah, that's very harsh on the judges. But I mean, the point is surely, partly people, I mean, people go to places to, to, to be treated in a particular way. I mean, you go to a court because you take it more seriously. I think if I was to go in, and I mean, I've been in little rooms where judges have sat and had to work certain things out uh, when I've been involved in that kind of thing. But, but that was when I was kind of representing myself as well. I mean, if you go, I, I think people will not take it so seriously. I mean, like these divorce centres, for example, that we've heard about uh, over the last few weeks, which have been giving people, granting people divorces, which turn out to be not granting them divorces, which is maybe something we'll talk about in a minute, yeah. right? Yeah. But apparently the one in Bury St Edmunds is taking 22 weeks longer uh, than they're supposed to to process divorce petitions. So whatever they're doing isn't working anyway. But, uh, but I think one of the issues you actually do have with the court is that people, people get what I call litigation madness. So people get wound up by being part of the process, absolutely understandably so. And I think the trouble is when you go to court and when you have barristers there in wigs and it all looks apart and it feels apart, people feel like they're about to go onto the battlefield. 
And it, it makes it very adversarial. Of course, the court process is adversarial. But ultimately, what we all want for our clients and what, uh, the, what the court process hopes to achieve is actually that people can come to an agreement amongst themselves. And so I think there's something about saying to people, you know, this is ultimately about resolving the, the dispute. It's not, it generally isn't about vindicating yourself. It's not about proving who's right or wrong. It's I have to totally agree with you yeah. there. I mean, the, the whole essence of all of this is that in, a, in the work that I do in the divorce field, people want someone to come along and simply just adjudicate on what is right or wrong in their eyes. And it's just hearing a third party come to that conclusion. I don't think most of my clients actually would mind where it was, provided Mm. it wasn't in a pub. I mean, I know, as you said, it's attention-grabbing headlines. But most people would like their cases to come before an adjudicator sooner rather than later and mm. the the lengths that people had to have their cases delayed was absolutely outrageous um, and there's one area that I'll just quickly bring up um, Bobby is that there's been a debate in Parliament this week about grandparents rights or, or grandchildren's rights to see their, their grandparents and these cases are taking up to two years really? to come to court because they have to apply for leave right. before they can go in and it's horrendous the delays and I think if this essence here of having these pop-up courts could save time, get cases to court quicker, I think everyone would be better off, particularly in children cases. What do you think, absolutely agree. I mean, I absolutely agree because time is the big killer because the longer you have to wait, uh, firstly, the more money that you spend because inevitably work expands to fill the time so it becomes more expensive. But also it, it's hanging over people and people just want their decisions done. And in a way, this is... This is why I do agree with this proposal, that it's, it's about practical justice and, it, and it, it's about saying you need the decision done, you want it done fairly and by good people and you do get that. So it, 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 it's better to, to actually just make it work rather than delaying for things like trying to find uh, some, some space to do it in, in a physical court building. I, I totally agree with you. And, and where would you not want to see them, Bobby? <laughs> there are all sorts of places I think I would want to see them. Uh, I don't know. I mean, sometimes, you know, on a day like today, when I'm either uh, in, my, in my office or, or stuck in, in the park, you're going to say, aren't you? I would say, you know, do it in the park. But I, but I think that might be a stretch too far, even though I might might want to put on my sunglasses. And uh, Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, presumably the there's day. only... I mean, we're only talking about certain types of cases here. Yeah. We're not talking about things where security would be an issue or anything like that. And what about online courts? We've had a caller, uh, Graham, who's called up to say that there are now such things as online courts. Is that true? Well, you can you can issue a claim online. I don't I don't think you, as far as I know, I, I haven't ever seen a case where you do it virtually. You have you have you often have phone hearings. But right. the thing I would say, from my experience, is it ne- it doesn't work unless you're there in in person. I mean, the times you tried, I tried to argue in front of a judge, not in front of a judge, it, it tried to argue to a judge on the phone. Yeah, it doesn't really work. You need to be in the room, see the whites of people's eyes, uh, and and so I think it's more about streamlining the process finding a way of making uh, the whole litigation process much less expensive. Mm. But there is video, isn't there video um, evidence given quite often now? I mean, that's supposedly the same as people being in all the same rooms together and seeing the white. But there's still eyes. the barristers asking the questions from the yeah, courtroom, though. Yeah, I mean, could, could you see foreseeably that there would be completely online cases in the, in the very near future? Well, I, I guess it's possible. I mean, I have to say I'm slightly sceptical about that in the sense that, 
yes, you can you can get witnesses over video link and you can cross-examine them in that way. But I, but I, to me, there's still something about people being in the same room, and it's it, it's never it's never quite the same. I don't know if it's your experience. Well, Bobby, it would be like turkeys different. voting for Christmas, wouldn't it? If you said yes to that, because obviously you need to keep yourself employed and keep yourself well, in the style employed, to which you become be, accustomed. We we just be sat in a room on our own, doing, yeah. doing it from somewhere somewhere. I mean, it does happen these days. Often, there are lots of English judges sit in the in the Cayman Islands, and what you often have is you have an English. Uh, judge sitting as a judge of the Cayman Islands, sitting in London, and you have two barristers who then are also in London, yeah. um, and they physically open a courtroom so everyone can watch the video link in the Cayman Islands. Yeah. I mean, that's getting pretty pretty close to it. But, I saw that in uh, The Good Wife, actually, I yeah. think, some weeks ago. But listen, Bobby, we've got to leave it there because we're running late. Thank you very much indeed, Bobby Freeman. They said you'd requested a song for this particular diamond section of the show, and I knew it would be this somehow. This would have been my choice as well, by the way. Got some good news for Con. Apparently there's an Odeon uh, in Rochdale, so you can go and see a film if you wish. Nobody told me this morning. He doesn't like films. Oh, for God's sake. Because you know why? Why? And Helena said the same. They're too long. Oh, dear, oh, dear. They're but, too long. But, you know, if he doesn't want to watch a film at the Odeon, <laughs> he can go to the Street East for Eat Festival. Street Eat Festival, there you go. Which is the, at like the Town Hall Square on Saturday and Sunday. Ah, I mean, you know, you so you can really, really live it out And I've there. got a nice one here from Matthew in Godalming. He says, uh, tell Con when he's visiting Rochdale to pay a visit to my mother, who lives there. Uh, she needs a little company following working as a presiding officer yesterday at the local polling station. 56 voters in 15 hours. What a poor show. So go and see uh, Matthew's mother. I'll get your address for you. (laughs) (laughs) Now, let's talk to Professor Oliver Williams from Cardiff University. This is the genius who's come up with growing diamonds. Now, I would have thought, Professor Oliver Williams, uh, you should be the owner now of Cardiff University, shouldn't you, with all this uh, uh, disposal, this uh, sort of disposable diamonds at your uh, your beck and call? Oh, hi. Um, I mean, to make something clear at the beginning, I mean, I'm not the first person to do this. Right? Really? I mean, there's, there's a bunch of people who've been doing this over, you know, 30 or 40 years. OK. It's a sort of scale of, of research. And, you know, in the UK, um, the company Element 6 are probably the biggest and best diamond growers in the world, right? OK. It's, uh, it's does it, does it not affect the, the, the cost of, 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 I'm going to say real diamonds, you'll probably tell me that's not the right <laughs> phrase, but, but underground diamonds, shall we say? Uh, no, I don't think it does, because the gem market is, is again, kind of protected. So, um you know, the De Beers Group have a, a small company called the Diamond Trading Company that, uh-huh. you know, spends a lot of time and effort detecting, you know, what you would call fake diamonds or I just call a synthetic diamond. Right. So, I mean, I think it's a very different product, the synthetic diamond. You know, it's, it's, it's relatively new in that, you know, it's been going on for a long time, but the sort of scale has now become relevant. Uh, but there are a bunch of very smart people working to protect the actual gem market. So I don't think there's any real concern there. Okay. But I love the idea of you growing your own. How big can you grow your diamonds to? Um, to be honest, I'm not actually sure how far we could go. I mean, you know, the, the biggest synthetic diamond I think is around is either 40 or 80 carats. That so would that's do. pretty large. Yeah, that's, um, you know, that, that's big. But this is not an everyday thing, right? I mean, this, you know, um, this is a record. I think it's owned by, I guess, the guys in Russia, NDT. Um, but to give you, I mean, just a guess at the size, I mean, a four-carat diamond is about 10 millimetres in diameter, right? So that's huge, yeah. you know, 40 carats. And are you growing these, Professor, um, with a view to turning them into sort of, you know, jewellery, or are you using them no. industrially? And what, what's the story? Well, so our interest is new scientific applications and new uh, industrial applications. 
I mean, to put it in perspective, in the industrial market, it's $20 billion. Right. It's very difficult to go through the day and not come in contact with something that's enabled by diamond. You know, practically all deep-sea drilling, you know, your petrol in your car is because people are making diamond drill bits, you mm. know, to drill down in the ocean. Right. And um, so we, we work in that kind of area. Um, you know, and it's it's a huge market. I mean, you know, the, the actual something like a 1,000 tons a year, probably more. I think that number's probably out of date, the synthetic diamonds. And this has been going on since the 60s, maybe even before then. And the gem market is much smaller. It's something like eight tons, eight tons a year, but of course it's worth about 140 billion dollars. Wow! <laughs> difference. Do yeah. you think you'll you'll sell them at all, or or would there be an offshoot that would sell them so that people could actually go and buy these things? I know they're out there already, but would you? Oh, specifically, could you buy one of them? Right? Yes, yes, that's <laughs> what I was really trying to say. <laughs> right. I mean, there are a bunch of companies out there actually selling them, right? And so as a a university, we've got no interest in that. I mean, we're developing, you know, new technologies. So, you know, I I use the government's money to do research, to find new applications, to create new jobs, right? Mm -hmm. Not to, you know, to do what's already known. Would you be able to 3D print one of these? No. Right. No chance. Yeah. Why? Uh, so, I mean, uh, why okay, can't so you? Now do... you're really messing with my head now, know. right? Because you know the okay. idea of now printing diamonds is going to send me <laughs> yeah, into a spasm. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, diamonds form in the earth normally, right? Naturally, and yeah. they form about 140 kilometers down, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, so basically, the temperature and pressure is 100,000 times the pressure you're sitting at now, and the temperature is at 2,000 degrees, and it Goodness takes me. billions of years, right? It takes. You no, know, it sounds like journey diamonds. to the center of the earth. Yeah, exactly. So. <laughs> You know, most diamonds are about a billion years old, right? So if you, one way to make them is to literally copy that, is to do the Superman, you know, in the film where he just crushes the coal and, you, yes. make, you know, you can do that. Um, and that's actually how most of the world's diamonds are actually made. Yes. Um, but what we do is a, well, is a low-pressure technique. <laughs> and, so, and so the reason, you, yeah, right. So, so the I reason didn't think he was real. Print them. <laughs> so, um, yeah, the reason Stop. you can't 3D print them is that diamond actually um, is made out of carbon, and carbon really wants to be graphite rather than diamond. So to make it into diamond, you have to really squish it. Right. Or you have to play the technique that we do, which is this kind of gas technique, which you also can't 3D print. So. But you say, for example, Professor, that, you know, this is not about necessarily providing a cheaper diamond, but surely if you can make this thing in a lab, you know, yeah. what, even aside from, from, from the cost of, 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 of uh, selling a real, uh, you know, an underground diamond, the cost of, of finding an underground diamond must be massively higher than you just growing one. Um, I actually don't know about that. You know, I know nothing about mining, right? And there are, you know... It, well, neither do I, but I'm sure it costs a lot yeah. more than you just going next door and putting something into a, into a jar. Sure, but the jar is quite expensive. Is That's it? about half a million dollars for a start, right? Really? And the, Yeah, the machine that does it. So, um, and then you have to, you know, you have to maintain this equipment, right? So right. I think, you know, um, basically I gave a number, I can't remember what it was for the, the cost of the gas or whatever. Right. But you have to factor in the, you know, the person power that, you know, that you need, you need some quite highly trained people. Mm. Uh, then you need to pay for the depreciation of the equipment, right? How you much does it cost to train years. to do this? Right? <laughs> <laughs> I think it just lot, is so yeah. fabulous. But as an offshoot, I think it is, it's absolutely fascinating. Surely it must depress the value, though, of real diamonds. It I must, know to be a stockpile to try and ensure that they, they control the market or they, and others with them. Um, but surely, if these things are almost impossible to discern from the real thing, then surely it must have an impact on the market itself. Um, so, I, I, you know, I can't really comment on the, on what the, you know, the price of diamond because I, I actually don't know, to be honest, mm. the gem side. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what I can say is that, like, I don't, I'm not aware of anyone who's specifically trying to flood the market with synthetics because, like I say, there is a very 
you know, strong effort to detect these, and they have detected uh, synthetics in the market. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's not as easy as people think. You can just then, you know, so what you know, what you can't do is, you know, just sell a synthetic diamond, pretend it's a natural diamond, and that's fraud, right? Right. Yes. And so if I took your diamond, say, say to your forty carat diamond that you've grown, or have, you know, if you have grown one, uh, or when yeah. when you've grown one, if I took that to Hatton Garden and showed it to yeah. somebody, and he looked at it under his microscope, what would he would he know that that was a synthetic? Well, the thing is, I mean, if you took something in that size to Hatton Garden, you set off about a million alarm bells right, for a start. <laughs> but, um, you, you know, because, you know, there's not that many of those stones flying around. Right. So, you know, anything over a certain size, and you'd have to check with the DTC what that is, would be checked with these machines, and they will pick it up. Right. Because, the, you know, even though we can grow very high-purity diamonds, there are some things that come from the growth process, you know, the synthetic process, that are always there or very difficult to completely eradicate. And, you know, scientists have very sensitive equipment, so it's mm. not something you're going to find in a shop. Right. But if but, something is that big and that valuable, they'll take it to a lab and check it, and they'll find it if it's yeah. synthetic. But you could make some new crown jewels for, for, for the market. Her Madge. For, 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 well, her Madge, and also for Megan. Yeah. I mean, she could have Good a whole idea. new crown that she wouldn't be worried about wearing when she's out and about. Yeah. Potentially, but I think there are enough big diamonds around, to be honest. They have enough of them, actually. Well, Argus are doing a ring for fifteen ninety nine. As I said, that you could get one of those <laughs> yeah. as well. But I, I'm a bit worried Just it may not be. It, uh, does it? Doesn't quite. No. 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 Listen, no. Professor, thank you very much indeed. I know you've got to run, and Professor well Oliver done. Williams, Cardiff University. Surprising lack of knowledge about real diamonds or yes, underground perhaps diamonds. I could help here. Yeah. I mean, can you tell me how much a forty carat diamond would go for? Well, the average diamond, I think, at the moment per carat is about between one thousand and two pounds, but depending on its purity. Yes. Well, that's kind I of what I was reading. Yeah. Well. <laughs> Apparently, it was like the Kuinur diamond, right? Which yeah. I think was something that at one time was that not owned by the Queen or something? In fact, I think it might be in the um, Crown Jewels. It is. It is. Pretty sure I've seen that in the Tower of London. Yeah. But like the kind of things that used to be draped around Elizabeth Taylor's neck, you know, like the great big diamond that Richard Burton bought oh, her. Yeah. What was that? Was that about twenty carats or something? Oh, huge! I mean, the one she wore on her her finger was about I don't know forty carats. Or was something it stupid? Yeah. Uh, but you wouldn't want one that big because no one would think it was real anyway. But I. But I isn't just... that is that part? Is, is that that part of the thing, though, if you're wearing a real diamond, you want people to think, wow. Yes. But you don't want them to think that's so big that it can't be real. Well, that's right. I yeah. mean, what you want is a good setting on right. it. And then everyone will want to mug you. But no, it's, it's, I find this fascinating that things now can be created in such a way. I mean, this week we were, we're hearing as well that they don't even, they can almost recreate the productive system mm. um, in mice. And, right. and there was fears, would that actually go over to human beings? Can you grow your own husband and grow <laughs> your own ring? I mean, how fast? Well, I mean, that would be the end, wouldn't it, for men, really? Yeah, it would. If you it could, would. You could I've grow your own say. children, presumably, Yes. as well, yes. Um, and make them in your own image so you didn't have to have any traits that from the other half exactly. that you didn't want to import yes. into the family. Yeah. It would make my job difficult. It would. You'd have to yeah. retrain. I would. And do yeah, something as else. Diamonds, as, as a diamond, diamond grower. <laughs> Absolutely fantastic, isn't it, really? Um, now, a couple more uh, suggestions for Con. Uh, one from Jimmy, who has tweeted in. He says, if he wants to see a decent sport in Rochdale, then watch the Rochdale Hornets Rugby League. Uh, but he says, unfortunately, he thinks they're away this weekend. <laughs> and then uh, Harry uh, says, Con should go and get his mind read by the Speakmans, who are apparently, uh, according to their Twitter account, the world's leading inspiring life-changing therapists who are apparently on ITV this morning quite a lot. Uh, or he can get his fortune told, he says. I can't remember what it is that they do, but they're definitely from Rochdale. Right. If they're fortune the tellers from Rochdale, it's go home. <laughs> and now it's time for this. The 2018 Perrier Awards on Talk Radio.
Hello, I'm Vanessa Lloyd-Platt and I'm your special guest host of this week's Perrier Awards. Normally every Friday, Katie Perrier casts her ear back across the week of the so-called Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Katie's not here today, but fear not, as last night I spent the evening on a conference call with Katie and the rest of the judging team so that we can bring you this week's winners. Now, our first award is the category for Best Impression. That goes to Mike Graham for his take on Arkwright from Open All Hours. And I'm not blaming just the NHS or the public sector, no. but don't forget TSB as well. If you're a, um, 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 somebody with an... Ex- <laughs> I've forgotten about that one. Sorry, go on. Yeah, the second Perrier Award this week goes to caller Michael, who wins the award for the weirdest noise from a caller. Is it a good idea? We I think it's a good idea to know who's in the country and to know exactly what they're doing here, yeah. <laughs> that was a bit odd. Next up, Mike is the lucky winner again as he wins the Perrier Award for the adding the most needless extra syllable to the name well, of the city. Let's talk to Martin, uh, who's in Bristol. Hello, Martin. What's wrong with that? Uh, not the best. Guardian Gaming correspondent Keith Stewart is the winner of the next award. It's the That's Not What That's Called award. It's just like going to a theme park. You know, at the end of it, if you paid 50 quid to go to Lego World, what have you, you know, what have you really got out of that at the end of the day? You've... Uh, I, don't, I don't think I, it's one of those best. things you don't notice at the time. It's Lego like our land, everyone. <laughs> right, the Fleet Street store at Mike Graham was a shoe in for this next award. Of course, he was going to win the Perry Award for Best Investigative Journalism. Let's talk to James Baker, uh, who's campaigns manager at No to no ID. Uh, James, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning. Thanks Thank for having you. me on. Thanks very much for, for talking to us. I mean, I assume from your uh, organisation's name that you're not in favour of ID cards. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it could have been, you know, it could have been a trick uh, organisation name. You never know. No, it wasn't. Um, On Monday, whilst Mike covered Julia Hartley Brewer's no-nonsense breakfast show with his some-nonsense breakfast show, a certain George Galloway looked after the Independent Republic. He wins two awards this week. The first is the best question for the week of the week. What's the loveliest thing about a hedgehog, Hugh? That takes me back to the Big Brother episode, to be honest. Oh, my God, yes. The saucer of milk. I can still see him crawling around. (laughs) And Mr Galloway also wins the award for the strangest demand given to followers. I love hedgehogs, as must you. (laughs) Is he all right? Is he all right? Well, I mean, maybe it's because he's gone into the hedgehog business. I don't know. (laughs) And finally, one more for Mike this week. He wins the You Should Be So Lucky award. No, I think, well, you know, one thing we're very good at is deflecting uh, any kind of blame for anything. So clearly, if if you've given me the reason, uh, Dr. Chana Jayasena from the (laughs) Imperial College of London, that I can use against my uh, other half to say there's a reason why I'm like this, you know, I I might sort of get a leg up in some way. God, that went on a bit, didn't it? Yeah, it did. Blimey. Um, That's all for the Perrier Awards this week, but there'll be more next Friday. The 2018 Perrier Awards on Talk Radio. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.